0: I had the strangest experience last night. I had these tapes recorded on my answering machine 10 years ago. Tapes that I had not heard in a decade until last night. And um, I, don't, I don't think I can play these tapes for you. I don't think that the people on them would give the permission. On one tape, there's a brief conversation between me and this woman who I lived with for seven years, accidentally recorded by the answering machine, just as we were splitting up. And um, on this tape, she's calling me from the street to say that she's going to a movie with a friend. And I tell her I'd like to come along. She's got to have it, is the movie uh, Is the movie that they're seeing. And she indicates no, she, that I'm not welcome. And then I tell her, well, I guess maybe I really do have too much work to do and some laundry that I have to get done. And later in the conversation, she asks if I'm going to be up late, and I say no. And she says, well, I thought you said you had all this work to do. Like she's catching me in a lie. I mean, she is. She is catching me in a lie, but, you know, a, a lie, that kind of made it her bidding. And um, then she asked me if I'm absolutely sure that I'm going to get her laundry done that night. And I tell her I'm sure. It was hard to listen to. I mean, I can hear myself being so scared of her in this tape. And in the same conversation, she talks about this guy who, just a few weeks later, she got involved with, her next serious relationship after me. And um, I talk about this woman who I was just about to start seeing in this serious way after her. And that part of the conversation is very awkward, <laughs> very like very awkward. And before I heard this tape, I could not have remembered much about that summer. That summer where we were splitting up in 1988, after seven years. But hearing the tape, it all came back. Where we lived, what was in the apartment, what we used to wear, how we talked to each other, and how I felt all the time when we were together. This way that I, I, I don't feel anymore. And um, it messed me up. And it wasn't like looking at photos. You know, pictures are posed, you know. Pictures are these tiny little they're tiny, you know, you can hold them in your hand. They're like three three by five, you know, you can crush a picture. This was not posed. And it was not small. And um part of that I think is just the power of recordings. And part of it was the fact that we were on the phone. There is something about being on the telephone. It's just so intimate. Talking to a person on the phone, it's you are right there. You are so close. It's like you're whispering in each other's ears. There are these tapes of Lyndon Johnson on the telephone in this audiobook called Taking Charge by historian Michael Beschloss. And Beschloss makes the argument that without these recordings of Lyndon Johnson on the telephone, an important part of Johnson would be completely lost to history. These tapes are so raw. We hear him like <laughs> operating on people in this way that is so... It, he best less makes the argument that it rarely comes through in transcripts of meetings or public events. in just, you know, trying to charm people and flatter them and plan their weaknesses and strong-arm them. And he's more honest on the phone than he was in public. In public, Johnson said that he believed the Warren Commission report On the telephone, he admitted he didn't believe in it. You know, he didn't believe that a lone assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald, acted alone, killing JFK. In public, Johnson supported the Vietnam War. On the telephone, he admitted his doubts.
1: I'll tell you, the more I just stayed awake last night thinking about this thing, the more I think of it, I don't know what in the hell, uh, it looks like me, we're getting into another Korea. It just worries the hell out of me. I don't see what we can ever hope to get out of there with once we're committed. He's talking to uh, National Security Advisor McGeorge Bundy. I don't think it's worth fighting for, and I don't think we can get out. And it's just the biggest damn mess. It I is, ever saw. it's an awful mess. I look at this sergeant of mine this morning, got six little old kids over there, and he was getting out my things and bringing me in my night reading and all that kind of stuff, and I just thought about ordering those kids in there and what in the hell am i ordering him out there for one what, thing what the that is worth to me what is laos worth to me what is it worth to this country now of course if you start running the communist they may just chase you right into your own kitchen yeah that's the trouble and well, that is what the rest of the uh, that half of the world is going to think if this thing comes apart on us that's that's the dilemma that's, that's exactly, the dilemma. exactly the dilemma but everybody i talk to it's got any sense nearly just says oh my god please give us thought. Yeah. but uh, it's damn easy to get in a war but it's going to be awfully hard to ever extricate it's yourself very if you get easy. in i'm i'm very sensitive to the fact that people who are having trouble with an intransigent problem are very easy. Brain...
0: on the telephone we are who we truly are, some of the time anyway. Well, from WBEZ Chicago and Public Radio International, it's This American Life, I'm Ira Glass. Each week in our program, of course, we choose a theme, you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's program, telephone stories. What we reveal about ourselves on the phone that we do not reveal any other way. Act one, when the wall came tumbling down, the story of a teenager, illegal drug use, lying, stealing and a kid's life completely changed when he heard how he sounded on the phone. Act two, when your telephone is your medium. Sure, you know, you can try to get your pop songs onto records, onto the radio, onto MTV, but what if your medium of choice is the telephone? We offer a case example, the band They Might Be Giants. Act three, telephone as history, moments from a normal human life saved, On answering machine. Same with this. Act one. Let's forget uh, telephone numbers for a moment and let's start with a zip code 90210. That's where this story takes place, literally. Joshua was a student at Beverly Hills High School. Kids there had a lot of money, did a lot of drugs. And he started doing them, too, in a pretty serious way.
2: I failed English. I failed P.E., even, (laughs) which is difficult to do, unless you're, you know, running off getting stoned whenever you're supposed to be running around the track. Um, And I just, you know, I just did whatever I wanted to do whenever I wanted to do it. You know, I stole money from my parents kind of regularly to, to finance my marijuana habit. Um, I did break into um, my parents' tenants, basically, house a few times, mostly to steal drugs, not money. But that was the only stealing that I did. I, I, never, I never actually st- stole anything except for drugs and money. And the money I only stole from my parents well, I noticed my dad started to um, punish me for things that i that i hadn 't done, or at least things that he couldn 't have possibly known that I had done and uh, it was you know I would have a great weekend planned for instance, and we were going to go out and do whatever sorts of craziness would would come up, you know maybe we 'll go. Take some some LSD or something like that, or mushrooms, and it was. And my dad would would ground me the day before, you know, for for no particular reason, and it was very strange. The timing was uncanny. Um, and uh, one day he was driving me down to school, as he did every morning, and uh, on the way to school he told me that. Uh, that the administration of the, of Beverly had contacted him and that they were going to... They had narcs in the school that were posing as students and um, they were going to run a sweep of the school and basically bust everyone who was involved in this. So he told me that the the administration had contacted him because... They knew that I was involved in this this whole faction of of bad eggs, and they they also knew that I was not a, a dealer. Basically, they were calling him to warn him to basically give me a chance to get out of the bust. So he told me, you know, I better get it together because it's gonna happen very soon and then in the same conversation he started uh, you know naming all of the names of the kids that were involved in and um, there were names that there there was no way he could know and so the story was very credible the way it was the way it was uh, laid out and I believed it 100% and I went to school that day I remember and I told Of course, I told all of my friends that there was going to be this major bust happening at Beverly Hills High School very soon, and uh, so everybody better quickly go undercover. And uh, people became much more careful. About a month later, I was uh, in the backyard, and... There had been a windstorm the night before, a really big wind, and a panel on the side of the house had come off. And I was in the backyard with my friend, and we were smoking a joint, like we always did. Every day after school, we would come home and smoke a joint. Um, And my friend noticed this panel down. Um, I'll, I'll never forget this one, actually. He said, ''Dude, what is this?'' come here dude and I'm like standing on the other side of the backyard smoking a joint looking at the trees and he's like come here dude and I said I walked over he's like look at this and it it didn't dawn on me I looked at it and I I was like what is it strange piece of machinery inside a wall it made no sense to me whatsoever and he looked at me he said dude your parents are taping your calls and that meant that dad knew everything no wonder he was grounding me in such a crucial moments, you know, in my party life.
3: I'm getting, like, some buds and some coke delivered here tonight. Really? Yeah, so, listen, if you guys want to come, just call me before you come. Well, you can come over here if you want. Really? Yeah, because they're going out, so... (laughs)
2: You're getting an eighth
4: for 25 and a gram. All right, I guess I can... Is that cool? An eighth for 25 and a gram for 10? Uh-huh. All right. The only weed can get you is the same weed I can get you, but it's dudeage.
2: When I saw the tape recorder... It was disbelief. I was in a state of disbelief, pure shock.
5: This is what happened. My son was was a very good student. All of a sudden, his grades started collapsing. His school thing started collapsing. He started acting like a complete fool. Now he's ready to graduate from Beverly High, and his attitude is becoming a total box. He's becoming an asshole everywhere. So, I thought, you know, the only way I can figure out what's going to what's happening with him is because he comes home every day and he's alone all a long time at home a lot of time on the phone right so I figure well what I'll do is that I'll tape record his phone calls so I went to a lot of people who knew about this kind of stuff and I said how can I do this they said well what you have to do is get a a voice activated tape recorder and you have to hook it up to the phone so I removed an outside wall of my house which was a bunch of boards Removed it. Built it into one situation where I could clamp it back on with magnets. So I could take it off and put it back on. I put this tape recorder inside the wall outside of my kitchen. The wire went down and then it went through the wall into the tape recorder. I figured nobody's ever going to notice that because it's way down on the bottom, way under everything. And, you know, who's going to look for the goddamn wire where the phone goes, you know?
4: Working. Working.
2: Un- unbelievable. I can't believe that this is going on. It, it was a multiple emotional sort of cascade because on the one hand, you know, I'm being incredibly violated by my father
5: but I we gave him whatever we could give him everything we could possibly give him and then I felt I felt real violated by the fact that he thought that was nothing what meant something to him was that he wanted to do these things that he wanted to do he wanted to be with these people he wanted to be with
3: Dad. I went home today during fifth mod yeah you turned my room upside down didn't you
1: All I know is that there was a note on our front door from Annie. That said? It said someone has been in her apartment again, taking certain things. What? What was missing? Some drugs. There was a note on It it. Been going into Annie's again? No. I just, I got that one
3: bud from my friend and that's all.
1: I want to know, did you go in her apartment again?
3: Dad, I can't get in her apartment. I want to know,
1: did you go in her apartment?
4: Yes.
3: And I took one minute bud. I didn't take drugs. I took one small bud and I left.
1: Okay, you go to work. But tonight, I want to have a little discussion with you because I'm going to have to try to find out where you're coming from. And I, Dad, I'm not coming. I just think I've got you figured out and something else happened. No, Dad. No.
5: He never came to my work during the day when he was going to school. Never. He'd start coming to my work and he'd start going at lunchtime and he would say, you know, hey, uh, I just came over to see if you guys needed any help or if, if there was anything I could do or whatever. And then he'd leave and there'd be like a hundred 200 bucks missing from from the drawer.
2: I hope Scott didn't score that stuff. Why? Because I want my money back.
1: Because you, you want to buy blow, below or you just don't want it? No, I have to give that 100 back to my dad. He does? Yep. How do you find out? Well, I don't know.
5: Tapes were horrible, redundant, stupid, dull.
3: He goes, check this out. And he just hit the accelerator and the thing took off, man. It's so fast. It's so rad.
5: You know, a teenager gets on the phone. They stay on the phone for a long time. Hours. I would come home and I would have to listen to, like, three, four hours of tape of him on the phone saying nothing. I mean, dribble, like... Hey, hey man. You know, what's up? What you what are you gonna do? Hey, what are you gonna do?
3: Hello? Hey. Hey, what's happening? Uh, not much.
1: How's all? Uh all right.
4: Really
3: <laughs> But
5: the interesting part was that things would come around like What are we gonna do tomorrow? Hey, why don't we do some Coke? Why don't we do some I mean but what I would, what I tried to do was that whenever I heard something on this tape, that that was like a direction he was going to go in, I would say, "Could you help me at my at my shop tomorrow at four o'clock? I really need you." And he'd go, "Oh, well, I'm busy." And I'd say, "I don't care how busy you are, I really need you. This is important." And he would he would shut off the plants, and he would come and help me. So. What I tried to do by listening to the tapes was to redirect whatever he was gonna do, and I did that,
3: and it worked.
4: It worked. This
3: doesn't have anything to do with parents, man. We're talking serious matters,
4: dude. What happened?
3: Like Beverly Hills Police Department, <laughs> dude. Why? Because I'm not gonna tell anybody. Don't because you. of my known involvement involvement with
2: drugs at Beverly Hills High School. They they've been calling my dad and asking him if he's he've, if he've
3: they you know what they said to my dad? What? My dad named so many names to me that I've never even said to him. Dude, he just said, inside, you? dude, it's not, it's everybody. They've got about fifty undercover knocks at our school, at my school now. What you should do is just stop, bro. That's again. what I have, dude, dude. Don't even talk to those people. I have been. I fully just stopped.
5: There was no way I could possibly confront him and have a truthful uh, situation come out of it. No, he would never admit that
2: to me, never. Seeing the tape recorder, you know, made me realize, wow, what am I going to do? What's the way out of this? Because, I, you know, I was a conniver. I was going to come up with the best solution to escape. So after some thought, I decided that the best The best road of action would be to continue my lifestyle, of course, Um, and while simultaneously becoming perfect on the telephone. In other words, I would just clean up my act on the phone.
3: You're quitting. I swear, that's it. It's caused me too much trouble. Aren't you going to miss it? No way. Fortunately, pot
2: is one of those things that you like outgrow, kind of. Not really like it's not
3: like you mature out of it, but you get bored of it. Yeah, did you get the
4: acid?
3: No, dude. When well, do you get it? I'm not gonna do it. Dude. I'll get it for you, but I'm not gonna do it. You're not gonna do it? Fine. No. What's wrong with you, man? <laughs> What are you on? What are you on? I'm not on anything. I'm just tired. Dude, I'm I'm going straight, man. I'm quitting. Okay, well, I want my shit.
2: Now all I have to do is regain the respect of my father. (laughs) Well, that went on for about a month. It went on for about a month of me being perfect on the telephone. And it worked. He stopped busting me at crucial moments. I was able to go out and do everything I wanted to. Um, I alerted everyone at Beverly that, in fact, there wasn't going to be a sweep, that it was all part of this scandal perpetrated by my my father and um, much to their relief. And so that went on for about a month. Of, of this sort of, it was counter espionage, I guess you would have to call it. And it worked. It had gotten to the point of deception upon deception upon deception. I mean, multiple lies on both sides. So I was very disturbed by the fact that my relationship with my father had so apparently deteriorated. My father means a lot to me, and he did then, and he always has. And I realized the degree to which we had grown apart, basically. So one night, uh, I went out with a couple of friends of mine, and we took some LSD, some very strong LSD that we bought down in Hollywood from a, a dealer who was down there at that time, a guy by the name of uh, Strange <laughs> what was his name, actually. He was an albino. I think he's dead now. But um, anyway, in the throes of my of this LSD realization, enlightenment that I was going through, I realized that the situation with my father was completely unacceptable, and it had to be remedied right away. I had to do something immediately about it. So I told my two poor friends, who were also right in the middle of their trip, getting involved in whatever was going on in their minds, I said, we have to go to my house. We have to go home right now. So we drove here, and um, Dad was having a party. There was a party going on. And uh, I walked into the party, you know, rather nonchalantly. And uh, I looked at my father with a very serious look, and I said, I have to talk to you about something. So we walked outside to, you know, the the yard out front, and I said basically, I, Dad, I, I know you're taping my calls and I know you've been taping my calls. Which was such a strange, it was such a strange sort of uh, accusation I was making. Once again, because simultaneously I was admitting to him that I knew that he knew everything that was going on so on the one hand I'm saying dad you know how could you be so horrible as to invade my privacy like this while simultaneously realizing that he knew that I had been stealing money from him and to support my pot habits and um he said you're right I'm taping your calls I've been doing it for quite a while as a matter of fact and uh I, I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm not going to tape your telephone calls anymore. He said, there's something you don't know yet, but I'll tell you now, and perhaps you will not understand what I'm saying, but you think that because I'm your father um, and I'm in this role of the disciplinarian, that it's between you and I what you haven't realized yet is that your actions have far more impact on your own life than they will on mine I've already made my life you have to make your life and you don't know it yet he said uh, I'm gonna take take the tape recorder out tomorrow Um, and I was waiting for the punishment at this point right because there must be some amazing punishment coming down because he knew everything, you know, military school or what, what's he going to do. He said, I'll take the tape recorder out tomorrow and there's only one thing I want you to do. And I said, What? And he said, uh, I have about 40 tapes, about 40, 90 minute tapes of you. Um, I'm going to give them to you and I want you to listen to them. And that's all I ask. No punishment. No, we're not. This is over. This this chapter is over. But the tapes are now yours. Hello. Hi. Nothing. Oh, hey.
1: Um. All right. Well. Well, you don't have to talk.
3: It
2: was. I was embarrassing myself listening to myself
3: um uh, can I ask you something what's that are you are you awake enough to to answer yeah I, th- I think I can if I try real to hard um I get the feeling that you've changed the way you feel about me. I don't like that, oh really. I mean, obviously, there's nothing I can do, but... Nah nah, 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 nah. what? Well, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, then how come you haven't called me in so long? I've been busy. Well, that's really the truth? Yeah, I hope so. It was
2: about a, a week afterwards, and I couldn't really listen to them. I had a very hard time listening to them. Um, in a way, it was kind of surrealistic because I had no idea what I sounded like. And I didn't like what I sounded like at all. I thought I sounded really, you know, kind of unkind, self serving, mean, basically, and um, totally uncaring.
1: Hello? Hey, dude. Oh, hey. what's happening? Not much. Do you have any finals tomorrow? Yeah. What? English.
3: Really?
1: Yeah. I'm
3: kind of busy right now.
1: I can tell. It sounds like people are in the background. Well, they are. Parental units? Huh? Parental units?
3: No, no, no. Friend units.
1: Oh, uh, that sounds
3: radical.
4: Yeah, it is. Bye.
2: I was very self-centered and egotistical and uncaring of other people it was about me I was I was the star of my own stage and everybody else could basically you know go to hell as far as I was concerned I had never realized that aspect of my personality I didn't know how mean in that sense I had gotten hello
4: hello
1: is it possible for me to speak with Mr. or Mrs. O'Hara? no hello,
4: hello? Can I
1: speak with Cinderella? what? Bella.
4: Who is this?
1: My name is Crawford, I'm with the VFW. What is it in regards to? The National Veteran Wheelchair Gang. Well, can I take a message for her? No, I'll call back later. Well, listen. Hello? Yeah? She's dead. Oh, I see. So, you know, I think, what, it, what is it in regards to? Do you owe some money? No, we were selling and delivering heavy duty plastic trash bags to raise funds. So you wanted money.
2: And I remember listening to that on the tapes subsequently. And again, it was just it's like oh my god, I'm a I'm a a monster. This is outrageous. Look at the way I'm treating people. Because I didn't I don't feel that way and I'm not that type of person. But at the time, I I was very much, and I didn't know it. I didn't know how little I valued friendship or other people's feelings.
1: Then we went to a dance club and we just met some people. It was like these girls, but we weren't gonna scam off them. They were, you know, just friends or something. Like that. Uh-huh. We got we waited for like a half hour to get our table. So Did you scam early. off
3: them? What? Did you scam or no? no? They were just
1: nice. Yeah. <laughs> They were just like, you know, it was just like
4: conversation. It was that. Dude, if I was there,
2: that wouldn't have happened. We would have done some shit. It took me about five or six years before I managed to listen to all of them. My course of life changed Dramatically because of that event, and uh, a lot changed. I still partied, but I put it back as far as the importance where it where it was on the hierarchy, you know it was like smoking pot ceased to be number one, and you know lying, deceiving, cheating, stealing, all of that i I just stopped stopped it all
5: it was it was it was amazing he understood the entire thing that
2: he was doing that was so and believe me it was stupid because i never had the opportunity to hear myself i didn't know i didn't know what i was doing the tone of voice of of my quote quote friends you know i could hear in their voice in the tapes pain because of my actions and my uncaring, that that was an awakening.
3: I haven't heard from you for a while. Ouch! I haven't heard from you for a while. Yes, you have. <laughs> oh, yeah, when? Last time we talked, I called you.
6: I believe. Uh, oh, you
3: mean you actually keep track? No, I just remember that.
2: Really? I became the Watcher of myself while I was acting simultaneously. And um, I still do that to this day. Uh, I, I, I see, I'm intensely aware of my effect on other people. That's one thing that definitely came out. It's, it's like I, I know what other people are feeling about me. That was an interesting look you gave me.
3: Oh. Ha, I know. <laughs> so what's the problem with you? What are you pissed off at me for? I don't
4: know.
3: Is it that time of the month again?
4: No.
3: <laughs> kind of this one. Well um, then what's wrong? Well, I guess the basic thing is I don't like your fluctuation in attention towards me. <laughs> what are you talking about? If, I, if I'm not going somewhere, if I have not got a set place that I am off to, and I'm like, probably usually late, then I'll then I stop and talk to you. <laughs> uh-huh. And it's like, well, for, forget it then, shit. Wait, hold on. Uh-huh.
2: It's it was valuable, very valuable to be able to witness myself in that way, although painful. I got to see myself. It's a rare, I mean, it's a rare gift in a way, to be able to see yourself from the outside, from an objective kind of point of view. Um, I think it's probably al- always going to be difficult to, to to watch yourself, you know. Given, given an opportunity, I think most people would probably not want to s- see themselves that clearly.
0: Joshua and his father talked to Dave Kestenbaum, who's a writer for Science Magazine, and to Julie Snyder. coming up. Telephone is an artistic medium. Telephone is muse. What a songwriter can learn from the telephone. That's in a minute. From Public Radio International. When our program continues. American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Each week in our program, of course, we choose a theme, invite a variety of reporters and writers and performers to tackle that theme. Today's show, things we learn on the phone, who we are on the phone, things we find on the phone that we cannot find anywhere else. We have arrived at act two of our program, When the Telephone is Your Medium. Well, the band They Might Be Giants do not have a song on every episode of This American Life. But I have to say, most weeks, at some point, Contributing editor Sarah Val suggests a song of theirs that might work in the show. And that's because they are not only prolific, more than other bands, they write about an astonishing number of things in this surprising, funny way. Also, although they're an actual pop band with actual pop hits, it is hard to think of any band in the last 20 years with more inventive arrangements. They just have this sound, this sense of how different instruments go together. They bring pre-rock instruments into the rock universe in this completely charming way. John Linnell, if they might be giants, he is the Keith Richards of the Bass Clarinet. And at the heart of their artistic practices, now you know we have a theme to the show every week, we have a theme to this show, and you know what the theme is, so you know where I'm going with this. At the heart of their artistic practice is the telephone. It was, anyway. Still sort of is. Sarah Val visited them in Brooklyn.
7: What if art cost a quarter a pop? What if it offered home delivery? What if it was short but sweet? What if art was just a phone call away?
6: Hello, everybody. This is John and M.P.
8: Jonas. Thank you for calling our dial song service. We hope you like it. Hope it sounds good over your phone. Thank you for calling Call back anytime. They call me
1: Dr. Word. Good
4: morning How are you doctor? I'm interested in things. I'm not a real
7: doctor I It's a simple, beautiful idea that anyone, anywhere, anytime can phone a number in Brooklyn, listen to one of They Might Be Giants wonderful or wonderfully weird songs and it doesn't cost anything more than any other normal call. Dial-A-Song's motto, free when you call from work. Uh When John Flansburg and John Linnell of They Might Be Giants started their Dial-A-Song service 15 years ago, they didn't have a record contract. All they had was an answering machine and a dream. And that dream was to get people besides their friends to hear their music. Then they got a record deal. They were on the radio, on MTV even. They considered dismantling the democratic empire of Dial-A-Song. But they were afraid their fans would accuse them of selling out of turning their back on the people. And by the people, I mean the people. And you can understand that the first year, the first five years even, but it's been 15 years now. This funny little idea that they had back during the early Reagan administration, now it's just who they are. Ladies and gentlemen, they rock the stage, they rock the records, they rock the phone lines. Do you remember the first song? the first dial mm, song. I cuz
6: John played John said, you know, I set it up. I was living in a different part of Brooklyn, so I phoned him up. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it was Toddler Highway and he recorded it really quietly because we had this problem with the phone machine where a loud sound with this particular model would actually tell the machine that that was the end of the message. It would think it was the beep. <laughs> it would think it was the beep, so almost all our songs had to be kind of tamed, and and that particular note had was like completely off limits.
8: Yeah. Any anytime there was a long note sung, we would have to break it up. We would actually like sort of pop it out of the mix, so it would just be like, I've been, uh, 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 you know, to to just kind of keep it, keep it, you know, from going from just returning.
7: Sure. There are some adjustments you have to make if the telephone is the medium through which you express your art but there are certain advantages to this system. You can monitor individual audience response in a way that's unavailable to more successful recording artists who restrict themselves to concerts and radio and TV. You know, media where more than one person at a time can hear the song.
8: Well, I think no. up until dial song we were the kind of guys who had like a four-track recorder in their bedroom and we would just like overdub. Our voices or our instruments like five million times ago. Like, oh, listen to what the sound, guitar sounds like, if it's been overdubbed five thousand times, and you just kind of, you know, Wah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that, that sounds really cool. And, you know, and then doing Dalla song actually made us realize, like, you know, you're playing the song, people hang up in the middle. You can tell right away if they don't like. You know, you just sort of play your five thousand guitar symphony over the thing, and like two seconds into it, it's like click, meow, and and you know that they hated it, so it really was, uh, you know, it was definitely like rock school. It definitely moved us in a
6: particular direction of really clarifying what we were doing, and also clarifying the arrangement, you know, making it really simple sounding so that you could hear what was going on over the phone.
7: Right now, somewhere in this nation, there's a music student spending thousands of dollars to learn a discipline that he might master more quickly if he just invests in a decent voicemail system. Has it changed your ideas about where art comes from because I, I was reading that New Yorker article on Frank Sinatra uh-huh. and there's this part where you know Ava Gardner runs out on him and breaks his heart and he helps write I'm a fool to want you and then he stumbles into the recording studio and does it in one take and stumbles out in tears you know but, but I, I, he, he,
6: he actually always stumbled in an artist
8: <laughs> <laughs> and also I mean if you talk to Billy May or you know talk to the people who put the arrangement together or the person who wrote the song they might disagree about where the greatness of any given song comes from from. I mean, they're involved in the process too. Um, I don't know. I well, well, a lot of people like to think of inspiration as being, you know, you're you're like lying in you know on the side of a hill and you're waiting for like the clouds to cover and then the lightning to strike you. You know, it's this really elaborate, long process of kind of waiting for it to happen. And you know, sometimes, you know, sometimes I think you was- can jump into the sky, and grab the cloud, and grab the lightning <laughs> yourself. <laughs>
7: many, perhaps most, of the tunes on Dial-A-Song won't end up on a They Might Be Giants album. But all the songs on the band's albums have been previewed on Dial-A-Song, which means that their fans are in on their process. Here's how one of the band's best-known singles, Don't let Start, sounded in its initial Dial-A-Song form.
6: Could leave for our world, but you're my precious little girl. But don't, don't, don't let start. I've got a weak heart and I don't get around how you can get around
7: And this is the final, more compelling rock and roll Don't Let Start that ended up on the album.
6: this is the worst part to believe for all the world that you're my precious little girl but don't don't, don't let start i've
5: got a weak heart and i don't get around how you get around
7: the best lyrics in the song are ones they added over what had been just an instrumental bridge in the diala song version no one in the world John Flansberg says he's often surprised by how much they might be Giants fans keep track of a song's evolution.
8: There's this song that's actually like a a a bo- like a bonus track on Factory Charm. It's like before track one, this song called Token Back to Brooklyn. And I was talking to someone about this yesterday, and it was like this real, um, you know, I mean, it's the kind of thing that makes me feel like we, we are freak magnets, because the guy was going in the song that was on a song you said you wanted to kill your parents and then you changed the lyric on the on the, the record so, to, to <laughs> tell our parents. to tell our parents right, right, right. and i was just like well you know he's like and like the reason you did that was like why
6: cuz my mom was going to hear the record and me. yeah and and i and, I, and, I, and I, I i
8: explained to him you know that i really just didn't want to have any more songs about killing my parents. <laughs> and, um.
7: Any more songs? Any more songs. Yeah,
8: so. yeah, we've had songs about killing our parents before. And it really doesn't go over at holiday time. <laughs> and, uh, so, uh, you know, he was really disappointed. I mean, it was like, you know, finding out that Marilyn Manson, you know,
7: was a nice takes, guy. takes
8: the makeup off.
7: Mm. One of my favorite They Might Be Giant songs isn't a song at all, but a mysterious recording on the album Miscellaneous Tea of two unidentified callers discussing the merits of Dial A Song, whose number they found in the band's ad in the Village Voice. What do you think, what do you make out of that recording?
3: I don't know, Rory. I just. Don't Some kind of singing. They sound like all kinds of people, right? Yeah. And then it says another child is born in India every time you call this number, right? Yeah, right. Does that make any sense to you? No, it doesn't make
1: no sense.
3: But, and the guy that spoke, I don't know who he is. Yeah. But that's, but it doesn't sound like no answering machine, right? No, it
1: ain't an answering machine because they're not saying anything. They just.
3: But what does he get? How does he make money on this? Whatever he's advertising in the paper. That's this the part that don't make no sense. They got a, that's where the
6: kiss coins. oh that was a woman who phoned up and and uh, the reason why we had this long recording of her was that she was on a conference line with somebody else this is another like early, oh and they
7: were listening to it like, together
6: technology yeah Go she ahead. and she and this guy she had phoned to tell him about Dallas song were listening together and then when the when the machine finished its song they had this conversation and they had no way of disconnecting the third line so we had about 45 minutes of them blabbering on.
3: They got the craziest things in that paper. Yeah. But this one here, there must be giants, it's called. And it says, call machine. And they get the phone number. Yeah. But what kind of money does he make? it don't make no sense? Well, he don't make any money, right? No. But then he's a nut, right? He, do you see any sense to that? There may be giants. That, rec- that recording I have
7: on... Well, I used to call it. Well, I would call it like the. What's the motto? Free when you call from work. Free when you call from work. Yeah, a yeah. lot of people
8: do call from work. I,
7: but I, I used to call it when I was really depressed. Like, you know, so black and blue and, uh, like normally in those situations, I try and you know feed it and like just get drunk and listen to Neil Young and cry myself to sleep. But on the healthier occasions,
8: wow. <laughs> I should hang out with my downstairs.
7: <laughs> on the healthier <laughs> occasions, I'm going to like I'm gonna kick this thing and call Dial a song. And I remember once being just so depressed, you know, and in tears, and I called it and and there was a song about how there was an ant crawling up my back. Uh huh. Yeah. And it really. It worked. It It really cheered me up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. See, some
6: people don't wouldn't have that response to some of those songs, but you know, I always felt like there was something, something at least happy about the music. You know, Mm -hmm. you know that I mean, for something so impersonal as a machine that you call up, that at least it was sort of merry in the music. It's
7: better than that because it kind of includes both. Because it's very darkly merry, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of that sort of happiness that recognizes the dark side.
4: Mm-hmm. So it was a Join whole us. other
7: level. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like you had some new song at your show a couple of weeks ago that was very bright and happy, and it was about like death, the death man, or something like that. <laughs>
6: <laughs> well, I think I mean
7: <laughs> that's how I remember yeah. it.
6: <laughs> yeah, the death man. i was well, picturing you that know. That applies stickles. to most of our songs. <laughs> You're older than you've ever been, and now you're even older, and now you're even older, and now you're even older. You're older than you've ever been, and now you're even older, and now you're older still. Time is
4: marching on, and time. You're still marching on.
7: There's another reason besides this black humor that I call Dial-A-Song when I'm sad. I used to agree with John Linnell. I used to think it was just the deliciously dark They Might Be Giants music that cheered me up during those darkest hour Dial-A-Song calls. And that's part of it. But the thing that's just as reassuring about Dial-A-Song is the idea behind it, namely that art... Like life doesn't always have to be a big production.
0: Sarah Val is the author of the book Take the Cannoli, the often busy dial a song number. Get out your pens. 718 387
4: 6962. Screw kid, I got nothing to say. Quit bugging me, go away time you
0: Heck three, phone is history. Well, we think of our phone calls and phone messages as so transient, as throwaway moments. Here is another example of a personal human history captured by phone machine, in this case by Barrett Golding and Bozma Montana. The messages were about his father.
3: Uh, Jeanette and Ben Brooks and Lester and Charlotte Blue, we're all here having a little afternoon tea, and we wanted to talk to you, but I guess you're up. We want to know how Ralph is. Would you try to call us back one day and let us know what's going on? We all want to know how Ralph is doing. We hope he's doing well. Let us know. Bye. <laughs> Mr. Golding, this is Dr. Sparks' office confirming your appointment for Tuesday, July 12th at 4 o'clock. You don't need to call us unless there's a problem. Thank you.
4: Hi, this is Rose Bernstein. Just calling
3: to welcome you back and hope you had a very good time. And we'd like to say hi to you. Bye-bye. <laughs> over what happened. You... I'll get in touch with you later. Then. Hi, Mrs. Golding. It's Liz calling from Dr. Casey's office. I wanted just to give you my condolences and tell you how sorry I am. I think we should touch bases at some point, and I'll try calling you again later today. Bye. Hello, it's 12:30. I just got a call in reference to Ralph. Please give me a call whenever you can. Thank you. We want to know how Ralph is. We're all very concerned. So give me a call. Bye bye. Bye bye. Mr. Golding? Bye bye. I wanted just to give you my condolences and tell you how sorry I am. And? Claire, I'm just sick over what happened. Will you? I'll get in touch with you later.
0: Well, our program was produced today by Elise Spiegel and myself with Julie Snyder and Nancy Updike, senior editor Paul Tuff. Special thanks today to John Flansburg and John Linnell of They Might Be Giants for the song that they wrote about This American Life, which we played at the end of Act Two. Also to Davian Nelson for gospel music tips. Lyndon Johnson tapes are in stores everywhere. They are from Simon and Schuster. Joe Skyward did the music in Barrett Golding's story in Act Three. If you would care to buy a cassette of this or any of our programs, call us here at WBEZ in Chicago. The phone number, 312-832-3380. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Funding for our show has been provided by Amazon.com, helping you find your next favorite book with over 13 million titles online at Amazon.com. Other funding comes from the Capital Group Companies, investing for individuals and institutions throughout the world and sponsor of the American Funds Group of Mutual Funds. And from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, the listeners of WBEZ Chicago, WBEZ Management Oversight by Tori Malatia, who describes his job overseeing us this way. I would come home and I would have to listen to, like, three,
5: four hours of tape saying nothing. I mean, dribble.
0: I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of this American life.
4: PRI Public Radio International.